Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everybody and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale and I am so excited for today's show. We've talked a bit about drugs and history before with episodes covering cocaine, pervitin, opium, heroin, and laudanum, but today we're going to do a deep dive into the history of psychotropic drugs with Dr. Sarah Black author of Drugging France, Mind-Altering Medicine in the Long 19th Century. Sarah's book is absolutely incredible, and it looks at six main drugs, opium, morphine, ether, chloroform, cocaine, and hashish. The focus is really interesting because instead of talking about restrictions and criminality, Sarah starts at the beginning and looks at how these drugs became so normalized. As Sarah says, France at this time really was a nation on drugs, and the research carried out at this time changed the medical landscape forever. It's a big episode and we cover a lot of ground. Quick content warning, however. We do talk a bit about addiction and, briefly, sexual assault, so if you need to fast forward, that's okay. Having said that, it's a great conversation and I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Sarah Black. All right, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Black, author of the new book, Drugging France, Mind-Altering Medicine in the Long 19th Century. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we are so excited to have you. This is one of the most exciting history books I've read, definitely in the last year, if not ever. I have so many questions for you, and we're going to have to get to as many as we can. So we are talking about uh, psychotropic drugs in the 19th century. Okay. So how common were these kinds of drugs in 19th century France? So these drugs were really common in the 19th century. I, I focus on six substances. So opium, morphine, cocaine, hashish, ether, and chloroform. Mm -hmm. So this is a mixture of plant medicines, um, alkaloid medicines, and anesthetic gases. So it's an interesting combination of pharmaceuticals. Um, and these drugs were widespread in the 19th century. Um, they were consumed regularly as pain relievers, but they all also had kind of recreational uses as well. Now, I don't view the kind of medical recreational distinction as a, as a binary in the 19th century because these substances had many different uses for many different people. So France in the 19th century was really a nation, I like to call it, on drugs. Um, so my book talks about the construction of what I refer to as a psychotropic society, basically a society in which the chemical enhancement of modern life has become incredibly normal. So if you look at traditional drug histories, they tend to focus on later periods in the 19th century and focus particularly on opiates and cocaine to try and figure out how these substances became deviant and demonized commodities to be regulated by state institutions. Mm. So rather than focusing on that, my book really takes the story back in history and asks how did these drugs come to be so normalized in the first place? 
So why are these drugs so incredibly common before they become dangerous, illicit commodities later in the century? So they were used in pharmaceutical practice. They were prescribed for everything from coughs to insomnia to headaches. And they really transformed the ways in which people experience their own minds and bodies. So pain relief wasn't something that individuals could take for granted at the beginning of the 19th century, but with the industrialization of pharmaceutical production and um, the development of new plant alkaloids, there's new and ever-expanding varieties of pharmaceuticals at people's fingertips. And so you can really treat pain in ways that you couldn't before, or it couldn't as effectively as before. Mm -hmm. um, so my my book really charts this progression of France's psychotropic society, when individuals came to expect and even demand pharmaceutical solutions to their pain as a kind of fundamental right. You you talk about these six different substances. Are are these the most popular drugs at the time? Opiates were probably the most common drugs in the 19th century. Uh, but of course, ether and chloroform were widely used as anesthetics in surgery. They kind of revolutionized surgical practice in the 19th century. Um, and then uh, cocaine was used as a local anesthetic. So these drugs were really prominently used. Um, the one drug uh, that I talk about that wasn't quite so common in medicine was hashish. Um, it was commonly used in medical research um, and they tried to use it in research to discover solutions to madness and mental illness, um, kind of treatments for um, those kinds of pathologies in asylums, but it wasn't really as widely used um, as a pain reliever as the other substances that I discuss. Mm, right, yes. Now, you make the important point right away that these drugs were both medicine or poison, just depending on the dose. So how did doctors research the effect of psychotropic drugs, and how did their understanding of them change the way that illness was viewed? So doctors, to try and figure out how these drugs worked, experimented first and foremost on themselves, on their own bodies. So self-experimentation was a really common way in which doctors would figure out how the dosage would work for these different substances, how what, what effects they had over the mind and the body. Um, so for example, in 1847, when French doctors discovered, uh, you know, it heard from American doctors across the Atlantic, that ether might be useful for relieving pain and eliminating consciousness during surgery, they of course wanted to try it for themselves. So the doctors congregated together in private sitting rooms, public lecture halls, all across Paris, hundreds of different doctors worked together in the few, first few months and experimented on themselves. Oh my and God. And this involved inhaling the ether and then stabbing each other with scalpels <laughs> or poking each other with pins. It was a very bizarre set of research. When I first came across this in the archives, I kind of couldn't believe that this was the medical research. This, this took up almost an entire session at the Academy of Sciences in the early months of 1847. So this was really wild research. But these doctors were so concerned about having this personal experience, right? Having a sense of how this drug affects their minds and their bodies so that they can then apply this to their therapeutic practice. So for example, one of the doctors that I looked at, Dr. Pierre-Nicolas Gerdy, he was a professor of pathology at the Paris Faculty of Medicine. And he decided that before he experimented on his patients, he wanted to try this substance on himself. So he inhaled the ether and stabbed through his palm of his hand and you know, remarked to his colleagues very nonchalantly, I only felt a slight pain, right? That I'm I'm such a such a grandiose researcher with this 
with this ether that I have the power to dominate pain and control, you know, the situation. So, so these doctors were really interested in having that personal experience and then applying that personal experience to their therapeutic practice. Wow. <laughs> Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. My goodness. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I know we we had an episode about uh, cocaine a, a while back. And we talked about um, Sigmund Freud's sort of uh, experiments with it and how his his friend you know used cocaine and then stabbed himself in the eyeball. And color, <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost kind of slapstick, but like really grim. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, no, there's there's some really fascinating cases of self experimentation in the 19th century where you just think how how did you think to do this to yourself? Um, but but they wanted to know. They wanted to know at what dose these different drugs would produce insensibility yeah. because you really don't want your patient to wake up in the middle of a surgery screaming at you. Um, and you also don't want to administer so much of the ether or later the chloroform that you accidentally kill your patient when you're trying to treat them. So mm -hmm. this kind of research, while it's kind of funny and amusing, and it certainly was for the people at the time. I mean, there's anecdotes of people dancing on tables and doing all sorts of crazy things under the influence of these gases. Um, it was really important for establishing what a safe dose is and, and what kind of procedures you need to be able to administer anesthesia so that your surgery goes well and doesn't lead to any unfortunate accidents. Right. You'd need to know before you tried it. Gosh, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. And in fact, one of the researchers that I talked about said, you know, this was one of the earlier researchers who was researching uh, laughing gas before uh, ether. Um, but he said, I, you know, I, saw this other guy, he was experimenting with it. And he said he experienced this kind of rapturous pleasure. Uh, and so I wanted to try it myself. But when I tried it, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And everyone around me thinking that I was in the fits of passion and pleasure, like the other guy, um, they didn't come to my assistance and I was suffocating. So it was really dangerous research as well. Gosh, that's so scary. Yes. <laughs> So um, you mentioned a little bit about um, how hashish was used uh, to treat psychiatric issues, but but morphine was as well. So how did they use those in, in institutions? That research itself originated a lot with self-experimentation too. Um, so one of the key researchers, at least behind hashish use um, in the asylums, was Dr. Jacques-Joseph Moreau de Tours. Um, and he was a, um, a doctor of mental illness, and he thought, he kind of theorized that if you used hashish, which is a North African cannabis paste, mm -hmm. to try and, you know, produce a temporary state of madness in a sane person, right? He viewed the hallucinations or the kind of bizarre sensory distortions that he experienced under hashish as a kind of temporary madness. He theorized that you could then use that same substance to produce sanity in a madman or in someone suffering from these kind of hallucinatory mental conditions. Hmm. So, so this was one of these things. So, so he actually experimented extensively with himself, with his medical students, with his friends, with prominent artists at the time, and tried to kind of develop a sense of, of how hashish works on the mind and then try to apply that to his mental patients. Um, hashish was met with limited success in the asylums as a treatment for mental illness. Um, but he then turned to try and research other substances as well, including opiates and morphine. Um, and so he and several of his colleagues tried morphine to treat things like hysteria, um, different kinds of mania and things like that. So the idea was that you would kind of increase the dose over time 
and then eventually reach a point of crisis and then either you know, taper off the dose after that or briskly suppress it. And you're kind of trying to shock uh, patients into sanity. Um, so this also met with limited success, but of course, you know, morphine being you know, the alkaloid derivative of opium, it was incredibly addictive as well. So what they ended up doing in the asylums was producing a lot of mental patients who were incredibly addicted to these substances that they were using to try and treat them. Um, so Paradoxically, um, by trying to treat certain types of mental illness, um, these doctors in the asylums ended up producing widespread uh, addiction among their mental patients. How much of an issue was addiction at this time? So in the early 19th century, of course, when you consumed too much opium, you were you could become addicted to it. And, and that was kind of recognized. But doctors didn't really understand the mechanisms of addiction because medical research on uh, morphine addiction, for example, didn't really start emerging until the 1870s and the 1880s, at which point they were viewing morphine addiction as a massive social crisis. Um, so statistics in the 19th century are somewhat unreliable, um, but um, there was a perception at least that amid various concerns over the degeneration of the modern population amid urbanization and the you know anxieties after the defeat um, of France in the Franco-Prussian War, um, all of these kind of anxieties over the condition of modernity, um, addiction emerged as one of those kind of modern pathologies um, that people were concerned about in France at the time. Um, and so, so addiction was viewed as a kind of widespread social problem in the 1870s and 80s after um, a lot, of, you know, as a lot of this medical research is coming out. Um, so, so it was a considerable problem, and it was a problem that doctors only exacerbated because they enthusiastically prescribed morphine for their patients very, very frequently because it was so effective at relieving pain. At, at one point, wasn't cocaine recommended as a treatment for morphine addiction? Yes. Yes. So one, so treatments for morphine addiction in the 19th century were very limited, right? You could either um, try and taper off the dose, so gradual suppression, you could briskly suppress it, so cold, going cold turkey, um, or you could try and replace the morphine with another substance like cocaine. Um, but the problem with that is um, that when you introduce another substance to try and substitute uh, for the uh, original substance, morphine, um, you can sometimes produce a double addiction. So what they found is over time, they were dealing with what they called morphinococainomanie, which comes from the terms for morphine addiction and cocaine addiction. So it was morphine and cocaine addiction together. Um, so they ended up kind of creating new problems, even as they were trying to solve the problem of morphine addiction. My goodness. Yeah. And, it, and all of it is so new and they're still trying to figure out how to cope with it. So yes. now we think of drugs in terms of uh, crime and regulation, but it wasn't always this way. So how accessible were these drugs in 19th century France and who could afford them? So they were quite accessible. Um, so regulations of drugs in the modern sense, in our kind of 20, 20th century understanding, um, didn't exist for these substances in the 19th century in the sense that they the consumption of these drugs was not regulated. Um, the way that they regulated these drugs in France in the 19th century was by regulating their sale. Um, so in the 1840s, there was a series of poisonous substances laws um, which banned, or not banned, but restricted the sale of these substances like opium, um, hashish, chloroform, morphine, um, 
it regulated them, but it regulated them as poisons rather than as dangerous drugs of addiction, because they didn't really fully understand addiction as a massive social pathology um, yet at that time. So in the 1840s, they regulated these substances as poisons. So alongside strychnine, cyanide, things like that. So you could only purchase, so you could only have a pharmacist sell them on a doctor's prescription. But of course, these laws were not very strictly enforced. Um, so pharmacists often would distribute them with without that permission. And there were a series of court cases that, you know, where doctors tried to kind of um, police their um their capacity to regulate um, these substances through medical prescriptions. Um, but you also have doctors who widely prescribe these substances for their patients as well, because they were such effective pain relievers. So it was really widespread, this consumption of drugs. Um, and not only that, but um, individuals also could buy things like, you know, pharmacy guides or portable pharmacies, which contained small vials of some of these drugs like ether. Um, and they could produce things like poppy head tea by brewing it at home, according to the recipes from one of these popular pharmacy guides. So they were really commonly consumed in the 19th century. It was, it was not um, that restrictive. And over the 19th century, um, the, the price of opium became much more competitive um, so that it would have been affordable um, for, uh, for members of the working classes as well. Um, laudanum was very, very inexpensive. Um, so, so it would have been accessible to a lot of people. We hear a lot about the opioid epidemic now with uh, prescriptions for opioid pain medication declining over the last 10 years due, of course, to the risk of overdose. So given how often it's still in the news, it sounds like a modern issue, but opium has been around for a very, very long time. Now you've mentioned yes. it now. So how popular was opium in 19th century France and how did French pharmacists try to meet the demand for it? So opium was incredibly popular. Um, it was used in a wide variety of different remedies. So I think I think your podcast, you've mentioned laudanum before. So laudanum is a mixture of opium and alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and that was commonly consumed for anything from coughs to headaches, um, insomnia, nervous conditions, um, things like that. Um, so, so laudanum, morphine, different opium elixirs and powders and pills and drafts. I mean, it was it was really commonly used in a wide variety of different remedies, including special patent medicines, um, which were kind of secret remedies produced by individual pharmacists. Um, so in the early 19th century, um, with the Napoleonic Wars, um, there was a movement to try and produce pharmaceuticals and other exotic commodities uh, domestically, uh, so that they wouldn't have to rely on foreign imports. Uh, because of course, opium is um, typically grown in uh, warmer climates uh, than in France. Um, so it was purchased usually uh, from the Turkish markets in Smyrna, um, modern day Izmir. Um, and so the opium comes uh, largely from Turkey, but there were efforts um, you know, to try and produce it domestically as well um, in the early 19th century. Um, uh, so opium was widely incorporated in all of these different remedies. And over the course of the 19th century with the industrialization of pharmaceutical production, you have remedies that are increasingly standardized in terms of their production. So they contain the same amount of opium, um, same kind of morphine content um, for each of these different remedies as they're prescribed. So pharmacists are trying to make these remedies more reliable and more um, standardized so that their customers will have greater faith in them as suppliers of these remedies. 
Yes. So was it taboo to use these or was it pretty accepted? It wasn't as taboo as it might have been later on. Drugs were commonly consumed by bohemian artists and other kind of eccentric individuals, um, but opium itself was very widely consumed as a pain reliever, right? So it was equivalent of something like aspirin today. Um, it didn't have the same stigma until later in the 19th century when you have morphine addiction becoming more pronounced as a social problem. So this was widely consumed by everyone. <laughs> um, you know, obviously not everyone, but um, but it was it was commonly consumed as a normal pain reliever in the 19th century. Right, right. Really common. Uh, you'd, you'd have it in the medicine cabinet pretty much everywhere. Yes. 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 Goodness. And then some of these other substances are really interesting too. You, uh, you also talk about chloroform and we don't really associate it with more restricted drugs like morphine and cocaine, but, uh, but for example, later on in Weimar Berlin, Anita Berber famously ate a white rose soaked in chloroform every morning for breakfast, <laughs> breakfast of champions, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. so in 19th century France was, was chloroform mainly used in medicine or was it used recreationally as well? So there were cases of chloroform being used more recreationally, but it has kind of gained a reputation as a more medicinal substance in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that there weren't chloroform addicts or individuals who um, used it for pleasure. Um, I encountered several women uh, in the asylums who had been treated with chloroform uh, you know, as part of uh, treatments for hysteria and things like that, who became addicted to it and dependent on it and were kind of seeking it out from their asylum doctors because of the pleasure that it produced. Um, so it was certainly used recreationally. It didn't have the same kind of reputation rep recreationally as, as opium did, but it was used in those contexts in certain ways. Um, but chloroform's primary use in 19th century France was as an anesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, so 1847 to 48, uh, chloroform kind of took over from ether as this new exciting anesthetic gas that could eliminate consciousness during surgery. So rather than having you know, strong men hold you down while you get your operation performed as you're, the patient's screaming in agony um, or tying them to the table to be operated on. Um, you could administer chloroform, they would lose consciousness and uh, surgeons could perform operations without pain or sensation. Mm -hmm. So this was really valuable for patients who understandably did not want to have to experience the bone sawing or anything like that of their doctors during surgical procedures. Um, and so chloroform was largely used um, as a surgical anesthetic. And I think that that has shaped how it, how we kind of view it in the popular imagination. But with this book, I really wanted to try and look at these substances like chloroform and ether, which don't have that kind of illicit recreational reputation alongside um, opium and morphine and demonstrate the ways in which these these kind of illicit uses and medicinal uses were all bound up together um, in the 19th century. Yes, absolutely. It's so interesting. And how how many of these drugs were used recreationally? Was was there that kind of like party drug culture or was most of this just kind of seen as medicine? All of them were used recreationally to uh, some to a greater and some to a lesser extent. So um, opium, morphine, cocaine, all, as you can probably imagine, used recreationally, hashish as well. Um, and uh, ether and chloroform uh, to a lesser extent, but there were certainly ether addicts. There were certainly people who used it uh, recreationally. I mean, the doctors who were self-experimenting with ether were doing it 
for science, but they were also very um, interested in seeing the effects of these substances on their own minds and bodies. So, so I think that that it's difficult to define in the 19th century what a recreational use would have been versus a medicinal use, because many people who later became morphine addicts began that addiction because of a medical prescription. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, many people who were prescribed different things in hospitals kind of came to develop a taste for them later. Um, And similarly, people who may have encountered morphine or cocaine in the context of a brothel or something like that may have appreciated its pain relieving properties at another time. So, so I think that it's, it's a little bit difficult to separate out those two uses. Mm, yes, definitely. There it's, it's blurry there. You, you can see how, how people would kind of get into these things. So Absolutely. No, I'm glad you mentioned that the, uh, the brothels actually. So uh, in your chapter on sex, you talk about how popular cocaine was among sex workers and nightclub performers. So of course, thanks to fiction and popular movies like Moulin Rouge, I think yep. people strongly associate the 19th century brothels with like absinthe, but it clearly wasn't the only mind altering substance available. So how much did the nightlife uh, in Paris and other places in France drive the demand for psychotropic drugs and what did they use? So it was commonly, they were kind of bound up together. So opium had long had a reputation as an aphrodisiac. Um, So people believed that opium would enhance your kind of sexual arousal, sexual desire, and enhance the experience of the sexual act. Um, And so you see opium smoking, uh, particularly in port cities that were connected, um, you know, uh, naval port cities that were connected to uh, the empire, um, you know, in Indochina and things like that. Um, Around those areas in Brest and Toulon and Marseille, you would have opium dens that sprang up in the homes of various demi-mondains or mistresses um, who were kind of walking the boundaries between kind of uh, sex work and um, and kind of partnership uh, with different lovers and things like that. And so they would run these opium dens that were also connected to sex in this in this kind of way. So so the idea was that the opium would enhance the experience. Mm-hmm. Now in um, Montmartre in Paris, um, where you have a lot of the um, red light districts, you know, the, you know, the areas where, um, you know, prostitutes are working, um, you have prostitutes who would kind of offer cocaine or morphine as part of a menu of services to sort of enhance their clients' pleasure and desire. So there was a widespread assumption that these substances could be used and deployed in very specific ways to enhance the sexual experience. Now, whether or not this actually panned out um, was a subject of much medical debate. Um, Actually, doctors did a lot of research to to try and establish whether or not opium was actually an aphrodisiac, and they determined that maybe in the short term, but in the long term, it actually impacted your sexual function in a negative way or made it less possible for you to perform well. So um, so it's, it's kind of complicated, but there was a kind of popular sense that that cocaine and morphine and opium really enhanced the sexual experience. They were used widely um, in in areas of you know prostitution or in in you know sexual encounters of various different sorts. Absolutely fascinating, and I think you mentioned ether as well. I've never thought of ether as an aphrodisiac. Yes, yeah. So um, ether didn't have quite the same reputation among prostitutes, as far as I can tell. Um, but there was this sense that um, that ether and chloroform could have this 
effect on the body. Um, and actually, um, you know, doctors in some kind of problematic ways um, experimented to try and figure out whether their surgical patients were kind of sexually aroused uh, during operations. So hip operations and things like that, they would observe, um, you know, patients getting erections and they, you know, so they you know, tried to research that um, as well um, by, uh, you know, nipple titillation and things like that, often with without patients' consent, to kind of figure out what the effects of these drugs, these gases, were on the erectile tissues. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah. And then, of course, that you know leads to a lot of problematic accusations of of you know sexual assault under the influence of chloroform and things like that. Um, so, but, but yeah, all of these substances were kind of used to varying degrees um, in in many different contexts, but um, they were bound up with sex as well. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I found that that section about the the doctors experimenting on unconscious patients, it's just, oh, it gives you the willies. It's just horrible, isn't it? Yes. Oh yes. my goodness. Well, and it was it was a subject of popular novels and and plays, right? There was um a, a play called Le Docteur Morphine um from 1906, I think. Um, and it was about a doctor who had who would go around and um administer morphine to patients um as a way of trying to rape them. Um and so there's some really dark uh kind of literature that plays on that theme of uh sexual assault um with the use of these different drugs. Yes. Oh my goodness, nightmare fuel. Yes. So um did psychotropic drug use complicate charges of sexual assault? Yes. Um, well, charges of sexual assault were already complicated by the fact that people just didn't believe women, you know, when they claimed to be sexually assaulted because they were viewed as duplicitous, they were viewed as unreliable witnesses to their own experience. Just generally, because they were women, they weren't kind of trusted as much as male authorities um, in the 19th century at that time anyway. Mm -hmm. And Doctors had this kind of bizarre assumption or, you know, doctors and jurists and things like that, that women should have somehow been able to fight men off if they were being raped when, which of course doesn't make much sense when they considered the women to be the quote unquote weaker sex anyway. And then you add psychotropic drugs on top of that and it makes things much muddier in terms of, you know, witnesses trying to, to get people to believe them. Um, there were um, a series of cases of sexual assault um, where a dentist had administered chloroform and impregnated several people and assaulted many others. Um, oh. And the kind of collective testimony of these women, you know, just because there were so many cases, people took them more seriously. But in terms of Kind of individual cases of assault, often it was very difficult to be believed, um, you know, if you said that you had been assaulted under the influence of chloroform. Um, so, so that was re something really, really difficult. Um, sometimes doctors tried to mitigate this by saying, you know, when you chloroform, you know, when you administer chloroform to someone for a procedure, you should always have a third party present. You shouldn't ever just be alone with a patient to protect your own reputation. Um, but if, of course, that might not have happened um, as systematically in practice. All right. Well, um, you also talk about the low birth rate toward the end of the 19th century and that uh, many people blamed it on drug use. Did drug use affect the birth rate or was it more complicated than that? 
So it's more complicated than that. Um, the birth rate was already declining before the late 19th century, um, but people became really concerned about it in the aftermath of France's humiliating military defeat in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871. Because France viewed population as a measure of national strength. And so when it looked at Germany, um, this newly founded German empire after the Franco-Prussian War, um, it saw that Germany's population was increasing. Um, so in the roughly 40 years after the Franco-Prussian War, I think Germany's population increased about 58% and France's only increased about 10%. Um, so their birth rates are really declining. Um, and in several years, birth uh, deaths actually exceeded births and the population went down. So these numbers are alarming uh, to people because they're worried about having enough soldiers to fight for France, having enough mothers to produce soldiers in all of these kind of gendered ways. Um, but the concerns about population predated concerns over the more widespread issues of addiction in society, but it was kind of bound up with that same degeneration crisis at this moment after the Franco-Prussian War. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't the drugs that were causing, the, the drugs were not certainly the only cause of depopulation. Um, people had been using uh, contraceptives to try and limit family size, you know, much longer than this. Um, but drug use kind of became demonized in this moment in the 1870s and the 1880s because it was viewed as this kind of pleasure-seeking, hedonistic, degenerate behavior. Um, because it was bound up with sex as this, you know, it had the reputation, um, morphine as an aphrodisiac and things like that. Um, it was viewed as a kind of path to sex for pleasure rather than sex for reproduction. Um, and so it was seen to kind of deviate people's sexual desires and sexual, you know, behavior toward non-reproductive ends. Um, and so that was problematic. And then the actual consumption of the drugs, of course, over time, um, you know, researchers found that it could produce, um, um, you know, sexual dysfunction in men and um, issues with menstruation in women. So your menstruation might have halted um, if you became really, really addicted to morphine. Um, and so there were ways in which it kind of physically inhibited the reproduction of the French population. Um, and then, of course, you know, they, there were concerns that it also produced birth defects or declining quality of population as well. So um, there was a you know, pretty common trope where uh, people would talk about an addict, you know, morphine addict in the 19th century and say, you know, before he became addicted, he, he had a normal child and then his next child um, had some, you know, mental issues. And then the third child um, had microcephaly or some, some kind of really serious, um, you know, cognitive um, uh, issues. Um, and then, you know, you know, declining from there. So, so this became a kind of trope. So, so drugs were bound up with all sorts of different anxieties over the French population, but they, they certainly weren't the reason or the, the sole reason uh, that the population was declining. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So how were these drugs used in obstetrics? So in obstetrics, the drugs were used as pain relievers. Um, of course, this, this didn't happen in a straightforward manner necessarily, um, but um, you know, shortly after they were introduced in general surgery, um, obstetricians in France began to use um, chloroform um, and, you know, in some cases, you know, localized cocaine washes and things like that um, in childbirth to try and re relieve the pain of childbirth. Um, now, 
the relief of pain in childbirth was kind of contentious because in in some ways doctors claimed that you know there was a famous you know biblical um kind of injunction that woman must give birth in pain so this was often kind of pointed to as a you know the pain of childbirth is a natural thing that women need to suffer through it's part of womanhood and things like that so some doctors were disinclined to administer pain relief to women because they viewed it as somehow unnatural. Um, but proponents of uh, childbirth anesthesia um, for vaginal childbirth um, argued that you need to relieve pain if it's not going to be affecting the progress of the labor or affecting the health of the mother or the baby. You need to relieve this pain because the relief of pain should be this kind of fundamental right. Yeah. Um, but they often also framed that in nationalist terms. So women should get you know, pain relief in childbirth because they're giving a new son or a new citizen to the French nation in doing this. So it's, it's you know, they, they viewed it as almost a quid pro quo in some in some cases. Right. And and it's not like, I mean, I've never personally gone through this, but obviously through, you know, things that I've I've observed, I don't think that childbirth, even with pain management, is ever completely pain-free. It's never it is not. a walk in the park. <laughs> yes. No. No. It won't be. Um, no, childbirth is never, uh, well, I won't, I, I hate to say never, um, maybe, maybe some very, very fortunate souls, um, get the pain meds just right. But, um, yes, it's, it wouldn't have been perfect even, even with the pain medication. And in fact, some proponents of childbirth anesthesia said, okay, we're not going to use this in the initial moments of contractions. We're only going to introduce it at the end when you're actually expelling the baby. So oh it's not that they're saying, you know, this is going to be entirely pain-free. Um, but, but some doctors viewed it as a, as, you know, a necessary right for, for patients. And so, and some of the women themselves, um, tried to advocate for themselves. I had one, I encountered one patient, um, in the archives, um, who her, her obstetrician wrote that she refused to push until he gave her more chloroform. <laughs> um, so she, she was kind of negotiating her own participation in the childbirth as a way of getting, more drugs um, to make her feel better. Um, and she did this with her first child. And then with the second child, she went back to him and she said, again, I'm not going to push unless you give me the chloroform. So yeah. it wasn't solely um, at the discretion of the doctors. Sometimes the patients advocated for themselves, but of course you'd have to be in a pr privileged position um, as a, as a kind of more powerful middle-class woman to probably be able to get away with that. Right. Of course. And, and with people still throwing around hysteria as a diagnosis as well, I, I imagine it would be quite yes. a fine line. And actually, ironically enough, one of the situations in which some uh, some doctors who were not fans of childbirth anesthesia for vaginal deliveries um, advocated for that anesthesia was in cases where the woman was being so hysterical that she couldn't be controlled or couldn't be calmed. And so they were worried about her doing something you know, dangerous for the baby. And therefore, she could have pain relief if she was hysterical enough, ironically. It, it, the irony is kind of absurd. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around. Yeah, goodness. So is, is this kind of where the idea that that patients have the right to pain management came from? Yes. So um, patients, when they view, particularly for surgery, but but for just, you know, everyday aches and pains as well, when they discover that there are very effective ways to relieve pain, they suddenly begin to ask for those remedies more and more frequently. Um, and doctors were very eager to 
prescribe these remedies because, you know, in a competitive medical marketplace, when you're trying to make sure that patients continue to come back to you um, again and again, um, and you have very limited means of kind of diagnosing and treating things like, you know, you don't have antibiotics introduced until the 20th century. So, so you're really treating symptoms. Um, so pain is one of those major symptoms. And if you can reliably treat pain, then patients are going to come back to you. Um, so, so patients began to view pain relief as, as this individual, right? And doctors kind of then ob obliged them as well. So it became really normalized to seek out opiate pain relief or other kinds of pain relief because that was a new option um, that was more effective than it ever had been before. Gosh, it must have, it must have felt like a revolution. That's, you know, I, I can't even imagine like all these years with with no kind of real effective pain relief. And then all of a sudden you have all these pharmaceuticals. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I, I don't mean to suggest that there was no effective pain relief before this. I mean, you, well, you had opium, <laughs> opiate remedies before the 19th century, uh, mm -hmm. but you have increasingly reliable remedies in the 19th century. And the introduction of these alkaloids like morphine, you can inject that under the skin and you can use uh, cocaine for very localized, very targeted pain relief. And it was very highly effective. Right. Um, so so it, was, it was more effective than ever before. And of course, anesthetics um, for surgery just revolutionized surgical practice because you could you could perform surgery in relative calm, right? You weren't facing someone screaming in agony as you're just trying to hack their leg off as quickly as possible um, as you would have done during the Napoleonic Wars, right? You have um, the ability to take your time. So this enables the surgeon to perform increasingly complex procedures over the course of the 19th century as well. Right. And then of course, they're less likely to go into shock from the pain. Yes. Wow. Yes. Gosh, it's so fascinating. What an interesting time. Now, yes. um, you have this this wonderful quote at the beginning, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it. You sure. write that uh, psychotropic consumption exposed inherent contradictions in constructions of the liberal self as autonomous, rational, and driven by free will. Instead, these substances revealed that self to be malleable, sometimes passive, and mediated through the body's chemical needs and desires. So how did the widespread use of psychotropics uh, change medicine and philosophy's understanding of the human brain? Yeah, so there was this idea that the self should be unified and free-willing um, in the 19th century. This was um, Victor Cousin, who was a philosopher, introduced this vision of the autonomous, free-willing, unified self into the philosophy cu curriculum um, in the Lycée. Um, in the 1830s. And this was considered to be the kind of quintessential bourgeois selfhood, that bourgeois men would go to Lycée, uh, the French kind of high school system, and they would learn how to be willful whole selves. Um, and so this was uh, kind of viewed to be something that was unique to the, the bourgeois male experience. Um, and uh, free will was at the heart of conceptions of judicial responsibility and political citizenship in the 19th century. Um, and so it was it was viewed that if you if you acted according to your own free will, you were kind of a full citizen. And the assumption was that that women um, and various others uh, were, were less less than full citizens um, and thus um, couldn't really have that fully unified self. Um, now, what drugs did in the 19th century is really complicate this vision of free will. Um, because on the one hand, if you consumed a drug like opium to relieve a headache, 
this is a kind of empowering action, right? Because you're you're taking control over your mind um, or over your body and you're saying, okay, you know, I don't want to experience this. I'm going to choose to consume opium. But by consuming the, the opium, you know, over time, if you become addicted to it, or if you consume such a high dose that you kind of lose yourself in these kind of visions and sensory distortions or consume hashish and do the same thing, um, this kind of undermines the notion that the free will is fully in control of the mind and acting in a rational way. Mm. And so when these doctors and bohemian artists and various others were experimenting with these drugs, many of them tried to experiment with the self and figure out how the self worked, right? Is it free will that's dictating everything? Is there some kind of underlying stuff of selfhood that we can discover through all of these visions and, and sensory disruptions from the hashish and the opium? Um, and so these, these same individuals who are trying to kind of prove that they're free-willing men of science, you know, rational and in control of their, their minds and their bodies, they're also kind of consciously choosing to warp and distort those same minds and bodies in the name of science as well. Um, and so you have this really fascinating, bizarre fragmentation of, of selfhood that occurs with a lot of this drug experimentation that really calls into question the vision of the self as unified and free-willing. In criminal cases, um, this had kind of interesting implications as well, because, um, you know, I look in the book at cases in which people tried to use morphine addiction as a mitigating circumstance for when they committed crimes. So, uh, you know, people who stole something from a shop um, and then said, oh, I, I, had, I was on morphine, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and um, what they actually discovered, um, I don't need to go into all of the, the details of the various uh, medical legal arguments for this, but basically um, they concluded that because addiction was so powerful over the human mind and body um, that if an addict was in a state of withdrawal, if they didn't have the morphine that usually kind of they depended on to feel normal, um, if they were in a state of withdrawal, they wouldn't be responsible for their actions. They wouldn't be fully kind of willfully acting as, as a subject. And so, so this kind of undermines this notion of free will as, as, as a unified self um, attribute as well. Man, that is so interesting. So there, there are all these complications to consider as well. So how dangerous were these drugs? Was there a backlash to their popularity? So they, I mean, you know, obviously you could have, you know, accidents and there were several cases of accidental death uh, from, you know, overconsumption um, and probably many more than were actually reported. Um, but in terms of backlash, um, the backlash against um, morphine addiction um, was probably the most prominent one. And that was kind of bound up with the larger degeneration debates in the 1880s um, as well. Um, but the French government didn't actually regulate the consumption of these substances until 1916 with a new law that uh, regulated what they called stupefiant, um, kind of stupefying drugs. We it's sometimes translated to be narcotics, but it actually was just drugs in the kind of 20th century war on drugs sense. So opium, morphine, cocaine, hashish uh, were being regulated um, from 1916 onward um, as illicit drugs um, 
of, of addiction or, you know, to be regulated um, in those terms. So while in the 1840s, um, they began to be uh, regulated as poisons, um, by 1916, they started to regulate the consumption of these drugs, but again, um, in only very limited ways. So it was only, uh, it was only if you consumed drugs um, in social settings. Um, so the individual consumption wasn't, uh, wasn't yet regulated um, at that time. Wow. So how did France's experimentation um, and research into psychotropic drugs in the 19th century influence the medical landscape in the 20th? Uh, can we still see that influence today? Yes, it created a new variety of medicines and it created a new expectation of pain relief among patients. It transformed the way medicine was viewed by the public mm -hmm. because people could view pain relief as something that they they needed to seek out and that doctors should be able to supply to them. So there was this expectation of pain relief. Um, and so, you know, in modern society, we take aspirin or Tylenol or something like that, and we don't really think about it. Um, and this is kind of the norm that was produced in the 19th century, that people come to just expect that pain and certain other symptoms are things that you can just manage pharmaceutically um, without giving it much thought. Well, this book is absolutely fascinating, and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. So where can we find more about you and your work on this subject? So uh, you can find me on my website. It's sarahyblack.com. No H on Sarah. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Black. And uh, you can find my book, Drugging France, um, on McGill Queens University Press's website. Excellent. Well, Sarah, again, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. It's been wonderful. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Sarah Black for being our guest today. Her new book is Drugging France, Mind-Altering Medicine in the Long 19th Century, and it's out now from McGill-Queens University Press. You can find her at sarahyblack.com. I'd also like to thank our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Nieberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. You help more than you know. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram as well. You can check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there and we're adding new stuff all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.